0: He gives us refreshment to be with our family. The last two days, I'm a little bit tired. But the last few days, I've had family visiting. and I have one family member that grew up in the church, she strayed. And sometimes you think, man, they're so far away that God can't reach them. And I've tried to witness to her before, but I was told real quick that she was all right between her and God. But her lifestyle is totally different than what God would ever want to live. But yesterday afternoon, we sat in the backyard, and we began to just talk. And some subjects came up, and I was able to share with her for a while. Didn't didn't really preach at her, but we just shared things out of the Bible. And you think sometimes, God, they're so far away, but what what is beautiful about God? He he reaches, it don't matter how far away they are, God can bring them back. So you pray for Lynn that God will continue to minister. She's been on my heart for a long time. But pray for her that God will just touch her and begin to work in her life. Hallelujah. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Billy Don.
1: <laughs> Not too far that his arm can't reach. Praise God. If you've got your Bibles today, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be here for a while. so Go ahead and mark that if you want to. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this is a truth that we all realize but we don't think about as much. You'll leave it all behind. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11 and then 18 through 23. Let's read together. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. And I said of laughter... It is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to, say, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. And I made, of, I made me a great works, builded me houses, planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them and all kinds of fruits. I made the pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house, and also had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I get me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. He didn't, he didn't hold back anything. If he wanted it, he got it. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Come on down to verse 18, please. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that should be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored thereof, therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. And what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Wow. Kind of depressed. Uh, I was studying some Some of the wealthiest, the top ten wealthiest people in the world today, this week, looking at their life and some of the things about them. I don't think anybody in here made the top ten. If you did, you hadn't been paying tithes, I can tell you that. Uh, (coughs) uh, When I was growing up in the 60s, the richest man in the world was Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes made his money manufacturing, Hughes Aircraft. He was a director, he was a producer and things in Hollywood. A lot of, he had a lot of different ways that he brought in the money. Uh, he would be worth, they said, about $40 billion in today's money. Time Magazine called him the man of the age. He would go to casinos. If he had an argument with the manager of a casino, he'd buy the casino and fire the guy. <laughs> the answer to everything was Money. He was also a womanizer. Said this about he dated many Hollywood actresses Ginger Rogers, Olivia de Havilland, Catherine Hepburn, many others. He was, in many ways, without the wisdom of modern day Solomon, as far as whatever he wanted, he could get. Uh, But the last 20 years of his life, he lived alone as a recluse. Nobody ever saw him very much. He refused to appear in public. Would not be photographed. He had a phobia of germs. He was very conscious of that. But he was weird. He, he refused to cut his hair. They say when he died his fingernails were 12 inches long. Uh, he, he wouldn't bathe. He didn't take care of himself. He saw doctors and personal servants. That's the only ones he saw. He stayed at a hotel in Las Vegas. And the stench was so bad they had to close off that whole floor. That's the way he lived until he died. And when he died, nobody cared. I told you about Elon Musk, one of the wealthiest men well, the wealthiest man probably today. Listen to this. This will depress you. Uh, the median average wage in America is $1,036 a week. That means that half the country makes more than that and half the country makes less than that, It's the median wage. A little over 53,000, 54,000, or whatever it comes to. If you worked like that and you worked 16 years at that wage, you could make what Elon Musk makes in one minute. <laughs> That's probably discouraging, isn't it? He's worth more than 32 NFL franchises put together. There are 150 countries in the world that have a lower gross domestic product per year than his total wealth. I said that to say this, and the man that wrote the book of Ts. He we told you last week, he's 11 times richer than Elon Musk. Hard to fathom. He would be wealthier than the top 50 wealthiest people in the world today all combined. He'd be wealthier than them. But he saw even though in his pursuit of wealth and pleasure and things, it all was empty. And there was nothing, it, it left him empty and seemed meaningless. So we're going to look at it a little bit today and see if we can't learn some things from him, something uh, that will apply to our lives. Let's look first for, at the searching of meaning in pleasures, the search for pleasures. We're going to go through verses 2 through 10, but I'm going to take it one at a time. He looked for things in laughter. You can look at verse 2, and you can circle the word uh, laughter, or you can circle in verse 1, mirth. Uh, basically means the same thing. Let's read verse 2 together. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? Okay, I like to laugh. I think we all should laugh. The joy of the Lord should be our strength. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. If you're a sourpush, you need a good dose of new wine or something. Uh, because the joy of the Lord, is joy unspeakable and full of glory to be a child of God. We should be the happiest people on the earth. Not just happy, but joyful. And joyful is different than happiness. But that should be a part of our quality of our life. But we know we're living in a world that's cruel, that's unfair, unjust, that's angry and bitter and and sinful. And so sometimes it's very difficult. I did a little search this week on the top comedians in our culture over the last decade or two. Here's some of them. John Belushi died of a heroin overdose. John Candy died of a heart attack at 43. Chris Farley died of an overdose of cocaine and morphine. Robin Williams. Robin Williams, one of the funniest people in America. Sam Neill, his best friend, who was also an actor, he said this, Robin Williams was a great friend. He could make me laugh more than anybody on this earth. He had fame, he was rich, people loved him, he had great kids. The world was his oyster, and yet yet I felt more sorrow for him than anything I can express. He was the loneliest man on the planet, the saddest person I ever met, and he took his life. Solomon said, I look for pleasure and laughter and fun is empty. Then he comes down to verse 3. You can circle the word wine. Verse 3, let's read that together. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under heaven all the days of their life. Okay, he liked the party. This king liked the party. Uh, Money was a big thing. He had plenty of money, so he could party a lot. Now I'm a teetotaler, and I I was researching this week the the, most of the reasons people give themselves to drink alcohol or whatever. Number one, not necessarily in this order, but one was stress. It helps them relieve the pressure of life, day in and day out. Life it takes the edge off for them. Number two, social norm is expected. Social drinking is acceptable, part of our culture. You see it every time you turn on TV. It's just, uh, it's just part of our culture. You, you don't want to be an odd person. Number two, number three, an act of rebellion, especially for young kids. It's an act of, I'm breaking away from mom and daddy's rules. I'm getting big now. I can do my own thing, and I'm gonna slip out and I'm gonna do some things on my own that they wouldn't approve of necessarily. But that's okay. It's an act of rebellion. Peer pressure. Nobody wants to be left out or unaccepted by their peers. A lot of pressure. I remember we used to get through with a football game. Uh, some of the guys would say, let's go out and get drunk. We're going. you going to come? I said, I- I'm not going. Amen. And they said, why? And w- one of them got mad at me. He says, why? All your cousins drink? What's the matter with you? I said, man, I was raised around it. I don't need it don't want it. And I wasn't even a Christian. I just didn't want it. But they, they, they could not understand. I was a weird one. Drink for fun. A lot of people like to drink because it lowers their inhibition. They can become the life of the party. They can sometimes be talkative. They can come out of their shell, so to speak. It kind of energizes them. Some do it to mask the pain in their life. It's their way of medicating to get rid of the regrets and the hurts and the wounds that they've caused or they've endured. And they can mask it in some way. Well, some say I do it for medicinal reasons uh you know helps your heart and things like that uh maybe so some people all have a good heart because they've taken a lot of medicine <laughs> anyway we went to uh we went to Israel a few several years ago and one of the tours we stopped at a vineyard a beautiful place where they had grapes everywhere but it was also a factory where they made wine and we're all in there this is a bunch of chemical salesmen people like that and we were all there standing around and we all they all give us a glass of wine in there, I had my glass of wine, and they said, "Okay, swish it around." I don't know what I was supposed to be doing swishing around, but I was swishing. It's supposed to be doing something, uh, and, and then he said, "Everybody, drink it and tell me what you think and I, It That was so nasty; I spit it out. <laughs> I would rather drink uh, kerosene. It was terrible. Anyway, but but some people say it just tastes so good to me. I don't know. One of the reasons, one of the problems with it, and he gave himself to a life of wine is the law of diminishing returns. Any kind of addictive drug, anything that can bring you into addiction, is the law of diminishing returns. It takes a little bit more to get to that level you had. It, it, you, the little bit doesn't satisfy you. I did some research on that this week. There are a lot of things that are addictive that people are in bondage to in this life. Here's some of them. Sex. Gambling. Gambling's terribly addictive. Internet, pornography, video games, food, work. These are things that some people, it controls and consumes their life. They can't even break free from it. But I looked at the ten most common addictions that we put in our body, uh, as far as that we take to try to do something in our life. Here's what they were. Number one, the number one addiction is alcohol. 28.3 million Americans... Are addicted. Now, about 140 million drink, but 28.3 million are addicted. Uh, They said in this statistic, national, whatever it was called, 63% of Americans drink alcohol that are over 18. 36% are abstinent; they they don't abstain from it. Uh, Number two was nicotine. 23.6 million are addicted. To nicotine, not just smoke or whatever. They're addicted to it. Number three was marijuana. 14.2 million Americans are in bondage to it. Number four, opioids. 2.7 million. Opioids basically are painkillers. Morphine, codeine. 100,306 died from opioids last year. Fentanyl coming across our border. It's the number one health crisis in this land. At at the exercise place on the wall, it says fentanyl. This is by the police department. It didn't say fentanyl is more more addictive than heroin. It said it is 40 to 50 times more addictive than heroin. Now, that's a lot. Number five, inhalants. 2.4 million people are addicted or in bondage to inhalants. I don't know what they're sniffing, but cocaine. Number six, 1.3 million. Number seven, heroin, 902,000. Number eight, stimulants. Now we start getting in prescription. Number eight, stimulants. 500,000 people are addicted to it. Adderall, Ritalin, methamphetamines, and so forth. Number nine, benzodiazepines. Uh, five million are prescribed every year. 500,000 people in this country are addicted to it. Things that help manage stress, Valium, Xanax, and so on. Number 10, we're barbiturates. 500,000 people are addicted to this. Sleeping pills, Lunesta, Ambien, and things like that. There's a lot of things that we, we look for to help ease the pain, to lower the stress, to make our life simpler where we can cope. And so many people are in bondage. He said, I gave myself to this kind of stuff. He was looking for parties, looking for excitement, looking for this. It's a a dead end street. Number three, he gave himself, this is how he's seeking for pleasure, to work. Verses 4 through 6, let's read verses 4 through 6. I made me great works. He didn't just sit around the palace playing video games. This man would work. I built me homes. I planted vineyards. I made gardens, orchards, planted trees and all the kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water. To water therewith the wood that bringeth forth the trees. This man would work. Now, work is a bad four letter word to some people. It's not to the Bible, it's not to God. There's, it's hard to find somebody to work today. I, me and my wife went to Gainesville Friday to go to Sam's. And on every major intersection, somebody's holding up a sign. And one old boy was juggling. I guess he was entertaining people in between, the, uh, giving, getting him some money. But. I heard one old boy, he said, I went to an intersection one day, and I saw a guy holding up a sign, and it didn't say, we'll work for food. It just said this, please give. This could be you one day. He said, I started to give him some money. I said, you know, he may be right, and I put the money back in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Solomon was a builder. Uh, He was a builder. He built cities. He built gardens. He had to. He had to feed all them thousand women he had. He had vineyards for all the parties and everything. Look at 2 Chronicles 8, 4 through 6 to give you a little in- insight. And he built uh, Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities which he built in Hamath. Also he built Beth Horon, the upper and Beth Horon the, n- the nether. Fence cities with walls and gates and bars. He just built everything in the world. Chariot cities it mentions there. Horsemen. Uh, everything you can imagine all the way through there. Throughout the land, this man was a builder, a builder. What he's known for more than anything else is, of course, building the magnificent temple. David was not allowed to build it. He built it, though it was his crowning achievement. Look at First Kings 5, uh, 5, 13 through 16. And King Solomon raised a levy out of all Israel. He put, put them taxes on the people, bad. And the levy was... Uh, and the levy was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon and two months at home. They they got off two weeks and they worked hard for, one, I mean, two months and they worked for a month. And Adoniram was over the levy. And Solomon had three score and 10,000 that bear burdens. And four score thousand hewers in the mountains. Beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,300, he had 3,300 foremen overseeing all this, which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. He was a building machine. Uh, He built, it took, with all those thousands and tens of thousands of people working, it took him seven years to build the temple. And you know that was a fine structure. But it took him 13 years to build his house. I don't think he had all those people, but but it's still he put a lot into it. You know, you watch HGTV, you watch these couples remodeling their house or fixing them up and all this kind of stuff. The one thing that made them different than Solomon, they had a budget. They were trying to stay within. He didn't have any budget. Look at verse ten. Verse ten, he said, "Whatsoever mine eyes desired, if I wanted it, I, I got it. I didn't keep anything from it." I, didn't withhold anything from my heart, any joy. In other words, he did not, there was no dollar figure that could stop him or hold him back. Y'all remember, he was a building machine. You remember Gilligan's Island? No, well, that thing used to aggravate me. I wanted to <laughs> choke Gilligan. But anyway, back in the 60s, that crew that ended up on that island, and the one guy on the island that was so short was the professor. The professor could build anything, it might be out of bamboo and coconuts, but he, he could build any. He built, uh, I, I, I went and looked it up, he built sewing machines, lie detectors, washing machines, uh, generators, telegraphs, battery chargers, and all this. I, I want to say, why couldn't that idiot build a boat to get him off the island? Uh, but anyway, uh, Solomon was a workaholic. Everything he wanted, he, he built vineyards, and he built gardens, he built orchards, he built everything, built buildings. Try to find pleasure in his life. And look at verse 11. You know, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, everything I've done, and on the labor that I'd labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Hmm. Then he comes on down to 8, verse 8. He looked to music and talent. He got a lot out of music and talent. I I like that myself. Look at verse 8, the second part of verse 8. and We'll come back to the first part of verse 8 in just a moment. He said, I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men, all musical instruments and that of all sorts. He liked music. He pursued music for pleasure. You know, that's one of the great mysteries of life. Why do we get so much out of music? Everybody doesn't, but most of us get a lot out of music. There are so many types of music. Uh, In my truck, on my radio station, I've got two of the two of the things. I got gospel. I got Southern gospel. I got praise and worship. I've got some music from the '70s, so it brings me back to my high school days. I've got uh, I've got talk radio. Couple talk radio stations I, I go to. I've got some. Uh, orchestra-type st- type music, like the big bands of the 40s and 50s. I like that. Uh, I, got, I got all kinds of music. Listen to this. There is rock music, country music, heavy metal, R&B, soul, rap, classical, bluegrass, hip-hop, reggae, funk, folk, jazz, blues, big band, opera, and on and on and on and on. Music's a big deal. Why do we enjoy music? Listen to this. Three to four percent of the population has a condition called musical anhedonia. They get no pleasure from music whatsoever, but most of us like music in some regard. If I'm going in a, my truck somewhere I'm going to have you I'm going be listening to somebody talk or I 'm going to be listening to uh, some music or something. here's what it does. It releases dopamine in your brain. It gives you some of the psychological rewards and things that other things give you. Uh, sometimes it brings back emotions, brings back memories. That song brings back a memory. I remember where I was, me and uh, my girlfriend, me and my wife, me and my this or whatever back in your past when you was in school. It brings back things like that. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird thing, but music has a, a big part in our life. He said, I pursued that. Man, I, I love music. Men singers, women singers, it didn't matter. He said, but it's, it's empty too. Just like these other things. And then he's going to come down to materialism. Verse 8, the first part of verse 8 I gather me also silver and gold and peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. He's going to talk a lot all through this book about his money. I've told you that was a big thing. We're going to talk about materialism for just a moment. Now, there are two things that break the heart of God idolatry. And adultery. And both of them kind of are meshed together. You might separate them. Idolatry, if you want to separate them, idolatry is giving worship that's deserving of God, giving worship to something else. Adultery, spiritual adultery, is giving your love and your devotion that belongs to God to something or someone else. Now, money can take our worship and can take your love. The love of money and the worship of money can steal a lot that belongs to God. What is materialism? Let me give you a definition of what it is. A tendency to care too much for material things, to the neglect of spiritual things. It's not how much money you have. I don't I wish everybody here was millionaires. That'd be okay if you could handle it. It's how much does money have you? That's the key. Not much how much you have. Is how much it has you. Jesus gave a lot of warnings in his three and a half years of ministry. This is the only time I think he gave a double warning. He he used two warnings in one verse. And he said this, take heed, that's word one, and then beware. Number two, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. He said, I'll warn you twice on that one, Solomon. Solomon wasn't there to hear that one. Materialism can be distorted. I'll say this again. It's not wrong to have money. Money is not immoral. It's amoral. It's not good or bad. You can do good things with it. It takes money to do great things. You can do bad things with it. It's it's where your heart is and so forth. But money has been the downfall. If I just take you through this book, show you how much destruction money can bring, so many lives. Achan, in the book of Joshua, after the battle of Jericho, he wanted to have things. He took the spoils and possessions hid it under his tent, and it cost them the next battle, and it cost him and his family their life. Delilah, Samson's old girlfriend. She liked Samson until the Philistines came along and said, I'll give you money if you find out how he gets his strength. He laid on her lap and would sleep, and she'd rub his head and do all different things and ask him he'd play games with her. She finally got it out. Her love went just as far as the money. Ananias and Sapphira, that's the first married couple that got struck down in church during the offering. I'm going to start looking around when the offering takes place <laughs> see just what's going on. <laughs> Judas Iscariot. Betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver. Money can be a bad thing. Now some people go the other extreme when it comes to money. They think to be holy you've got to get rid of all your money. It's called asceticism. They, 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 think it, they, they take a vow of poverty. They try to deny themselves anything that would bring them any pleasure from material things. And they just get rid of it. Uh, they go to monasteries sometimes. They go to convents. The Amish turn their back on worldliness and modern technology and things like that. Poverty does not equal spirituality. Lacking money does not mean you're a spiritual person or God's honor in that in any way. There's a lot of poor people that, that lust and, and covet money more than rich people do. It's just, it's just where your heart is. That's the main thing we're looking at. Now, this man is looking for something to fill the emptiness in his heart. He's already asked God for wisdom, and God gave him that, and then gave him all this other stuff. But he started leaving God out and started pursuing the other stuff. And he realized it's empty, empty. It's not fulfilling at all. Brought him no pleasure of a lasting resort. And I want to ask you this. Do you know what brings God pleasure? I'm going to give you six things that brings God pleasure. Here's a man that went through all these things, and he couldn't find pleasure. This is the six things that brings God pleasure. Some of these are the flip side or the negative side, but when his people walk by faith, it brings him pleasure. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, he, he took the flip side. Without faith, I don't care what you're doing. If you're not doing it by faith, it's impossible to please God, he said. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you've got to have faith if you want to please God. Number two, got to walk in the Spirit. Be spiritually minded. Romans 8, 6 through 8 says this, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity with God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot Please God. You can't please God anytime you operate in the flesh. So you have to walk in the Spirit to please Him. You've got to follow the example of Jesus if you want to please God. Matthew 17, 5. Jesus is getting baptized, and while He spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. No, this is when He's up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said this This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. When you listen and obey the Lord and follow Him, that pleases God. Fearing God pleases God. Psalm 147, 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear Him, in those that hope in His mercy. Doing God's will pleases God. Hebrews thirteen twenty and 21, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And number six, when you give God praise and glory, the sacrifice of praise, that pleases God. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now here's a man that was looking for pleasure. These are things that brings God pleasure. Now, he kind of sums up his situation at the end of materialism and all the things he's pursuing. And this is why he realizes it's all empty. First thing, he says, you can't take any of it with you. Verse 18, Yet I hated all of my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it, I'm going to leave it all behind, unto the man that should be after me. Money is a medium of exchange. If, If all you do is want to collect money, it doesn't do you any good until you do something with it. You have to exchange it. Money, you can't eat money, but you can buy food that you love. You can't warm yourself with money, but you can buy a coat or buy a furnace or whatever it is to keep you warm. You have to exchange money to get the pleasure for it. The money itself means nothing if you don't exchange it for something. Wall Street Journal said money can be used as a passport to everywhere except heaven. And it's a universal provider of everything except happiness. Solomon's frustrated. He said, "I'm gonna leave it all behind." Ray Stedman, preacher, uh, years ago, he was going off to a distant city to have a series of meetings, and the airline lost his luggage. So he gets there. He's got to preach at some churches, and he don't have he don't have anything to wear. So he said he went down to a thrift store to try to. He didn't have a lot of money, and he went down to a thrift store to see if they had any suits, and they had some suits there, and he bought a couple suits for twenty five dollars. And he said, "Most people." The man said, "Most people don't buy these suits." He says, "Why?" He said, "Because they come from the funeral home." <laughs> and he said, "When I put on them suits, I wore them, but when I put them on, they didn't have any pockets in them. You don't need any pockets at the funeral home. When you get close to death, it doesn't matter anymore. Look what it said in verse seventeen. Let me read that to you. This is his summation of a life that had could do and have anything he wanted." I hated life. I hated life. There's a lot of people in the Bible that wanted to kill themselves. I don't know if he hates it so much he wants to die. Job, Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and a lot of them. But they got over it. But he said, "I've tasted everything life has to give you, and I hate life." Victor Frankl. I don't know how many of you've heard of Victor Frankl. He was in. He survived the Holocaust. He was an Austrian. But they would ask him questions about how do you cope knowing that you could die any moment and all these kind of things Uh, and what does it mean and what do you think about and all this. He said, it's like this. Say somebody kidnapped you and they're holding you and they say, we're going to kill you in six hours. But until then, we're going to let you have whatever you want to eat. That meal that might be the f- finest thing in the world doesn't mean anything to you in the light of death. Yeah, if the doctor come along and say, I'm sorry, we've done all we can do. You've only got a couple of weeks to live, eat and enjoy anything you want. Food don't say, sound too good. Anything that we think is a pleasure to us, when you stare death in the face, it doesn't mean anything. That's what Solomon's saying. He said, everything I've got and all that I've, <laughs> added to my life, as soon as I die, somebody else is going to have it. Somebody else is going to be gone. I'm not going to carry it with me. Here's the second thing he said. You can't take it with you, and then he said you can't protect it. Look at verse 19 and 20. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? In other words, whoever gets what I've had, what I work for, it could be a fool that gets it. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored. He's going to take advantage of everything I, I work for. And wherein I've showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. He said it really brought me down just thinking about it. Not only you can't take it with you, you're going to leave it behind. Somebody might waste it. That building you built, they may tear it down, use it for something else. Everything you've done and everything you work for might be torn down. They're not going to spend it. You leave it to your children. That's good, but they might not spend it on what you want them to spend it on. It's theirs now, and it it may go against everything you believe, or everything you want. But that's just the way it is. David, he passed the torch to Solomon. Solomon, he's thinking about who's coming after him. Who came after him? Rehoboam came after him. He's the next king going to be. When he got to be king, he wasn't like daddy who said, Lord, help give." If I've got one prayer request. Help me to have the wisdom to lead these people. Rehoboam, he didn't go to God. He went to the wise elders and said, What do I need to do to be a good king? They said, You need to lower the taxes on these people. Them people these people are under a heavy burden. If you'll lower the taxes on them and free up their life a little bit, They'll serve you the rest of your days. He said, okay, that sounds good. Then he went to his buddies, his peers. He said, what do y'all think I ought to do? He said, I'd put my thumb on them, hard or never. Control them. Keep them under your thumb. He said, that's what I'm going to do. And he did, and it ended up with the civil war, and the nation was divided. You don't know what people coming behind you are going to do with all that you had. He said, you can't protect it. Here's the third thing he says: You can't even enjoy it. 21, 23. There's a man whose labors in wisdom, and in knowledge, and in equity, yet to a man he hath not labored therein. Shall he, shall he leave it for his portion? This also is vanity and a great evil. For what he, ha- what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, his travail, grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. He said, the things that you think is going to bring you all the pleasure, you still have the same problems, still have the same issues, still have the same things you deal with. You know, a lot of people that have money that's driven by materialism, they're, they spend all their time worrying about somebody taking it or worrying how they're going to get some more. Or they hoard it up, or whatever. There, every, everybody, it, it's not the answer. One old boy, hard luck, hard luck Harry, he'd been playing the lottery all his life. He only made minimum wage. He spent half his paycheck buying lottery tickets every week. He finally won the $5 million lottery. Been doing it all his life, but it wasn't what he thought. You got $5 a year for a million years. Anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's the way life is sometimes. It's a miserable Life. One wealthy man went to a travel agent, and he said, I got plenty of money. I want to go on a nice, nice cruise. He said, well, you got the money. You can go anywhere you want. He said, where can I go? And she, she brought him out a map of the world. She said, you just pick the place, and we'll make it happen. He looked at it five minutes and was frustrated. He said, you got any other places? <laughs> Everything in the world doesn't satisfy Now, the bottom line, let's wind it down. The bottom line is this. There's nothing wrong with having money. Just don't let money have you. If you work hard, work hard. Don't let it take away from your family. Don't let it take away from your God. Be a good steward of it. Don't waste it. Don't blow it. Use discipline. Be a giver. Be a giver. If God can get it through you, he'll bring it to you a lot of times. God, one of the greatest blessings in life is to make a difference in other people's lives. One of the reasons God gives people money. Read this. I don't know how many thousands of people have tried to climb Mount Everest. But 6,338 have reached the top of Mount Everest. 6,338 people. Three hundred and 10 died trying to reach the top. See, the goal is not to reach the top. The goal is to get to the top and get back down. <laughs> the goal is not how much you can accumulate. It's the goal of what can you do in your life with what you've accumulated. What can you do to make a difference in somebody else's life? Even if God blesses you financially, doesn't mean he's, happy with everything you do with it. And that you're going to have to answer as a steward for what? To whom much is given, much would be required. There were two wealthy men that were very competitive, and they were both tried out to outdo each other, and both of them had a horse. And uh, bragging on their horse, and one of them said, I'll tell you what, I guarantee you my horse can beat your horse. Let's race. He said, let's make it, let's sweeten the pot. I bet you $100,000 my horse can beat your horse. They said, okay, well they, they rented a, a racetrack. They're the only two on the track. He got his his jockey there, he said, I want you to ride him hard, and we gotta win this. If I win the hundred thousand, I'm gonna give you fifty thousand of it. So you ride him good. They took off and we're going neck and neck all around the first turn, down the back stretch, come around the uh, the final quarter pole. <clears throat> we're coming home. Something spooked both horses. They were neck and neck, and the horses threw them both off. And the old boy that was going to get $50,000. He shook himself, got up, got on the horse and finished, finished the race. He thought,
0: I won. I won.
1: I got $50,000 coming to him. His old owner came to him, was cussing and fussing, and mad as could be. He said, what's the matter with you? Well, I won. He said, yeah, but you was on the wrong horse. So a lot of times, <laughs> you got to get on the right horse to finish this thing. Uh, <laughs> that's the way it is a lot of times in life. I'll, I'll leave you with this right here. <laughs> Wilson Humber. Wilson Humber. I got a good book of his on uh, finances. He said, I've got one thing I like to do in life with my money. He said, I've tried to be a good steward and good re- uh, Christian, manage it. I don't have a lot of uh, hobbies. I just like nice cars. He said, I had two cars in my garage worth $150,000. He said, and this was back 25, 30 years ago when a nice car was $25,000. So he had two of them, two of them worth one hundred and fifty. dollars Holy Spirit, he said, started talking to me one day and said, what are you doing just letting them things collect dust in there? All the people that you could help with $150,000. He said, it, pay, it pained me. I went in there and took and sold those two cars, I bought my mama a dollars $30,000 car. I bought my mother-in-law one. I bought my wife one, and I bought myself one. Four brand-new nice cars, and I had $25,000 left over. And I gave that to the church. He said, I didn't think anything about it. I thought, you know, I was obeying the Holy Spirit. About two weeks later, on a Wednesday night church service, my 90 something year old mama gave her heart to Jesus. I've witnessed to her, talked to her, tried to do everything, and she just never was really interested. A good, good woman, but never gave her heart to Jesus. I think when I obeyed God with my finances, it opened up. What God wanted to do. It's hard to understand, but materialism can be a deadly thing because He sought for pleasure in it. There's no pleasure. God wants us to have a pleasure filled life. You know what? In the Garden of Eden, the word Eden, it means pleasure. God didn't put us here to suffer and endure, just have a miserable existence. There's nothing wrong with having pleasure. I was talking to Lauren. We were talking about things going on in the world. and She said, Dad, that's so discouraging and frightening. She said, but what concerns me is the Christians. I said, what do you mean? She said, I don't think the Christians, I think most Christians are playing church. Right. I said, boy, Amen. you ought to be a preacher. You're right. She said, I don't think they're going to be ready. I don't think they're they know what it means to follow Jesus. Concerns me. I said, honey, the shape our country's in because that's the shape the church is in. Right. If you want to you want to describe this generation, I'll describe it in one verse of scripture. Second Timothy three two. And it ties in with this right here. Perilous times will come and men will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And if, y'all, if I could describe one verse that tells you where we need to be, it's Psalm 1611. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. You talking about pleasure? You can seek just like Solomon. You won't find it. you only find it in Jesus. Would you stand with me? If you don't know Jesus today, these altars are always open to you. If you've tried everything and you've come up empty, you've got to respond to the Spirit of God. You've got to humble yourself. Yeah, it's going to take humbling yourself, it takes repentance. But when you do, He will change your life forever. I want us to do one thing let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this, your people, the church. Many of us are caught up in perilous times. We're pursuing pleasure, loving pleasure more than loving God. And we're reaping a very sad harvest for that. Open up our eyes. Your presence is where our pleasure is. There's fullness of joy there and pleasures forevermore. I pray that you would open up the eyes of your people, God. If there's any here that's found the emptiness of life in sin, would come to you in an act of repentance and receive forgiveness from the cross of Calvary. But wake up your church. Open up the eyes of your people. Help us not to pursue The empty dreams that Solomon, a man that had everything, said, I can speak from experience that brings you nothing. We don't have everything, but we're still pursuing it. I pray, Father, may our joy be found in you. May our life be centered on you. May our hope and our dreams be nothing more than your will. And may you truly change our hearts so we can truly say there's pleasure forevermore. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. God bless you. If you need prayer today, you come pray. If not, be dismissed.